This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. So for those that are new to this series, we've literally been talking about this core concept that God has a blueprint. In other words, he has a unique design. How many say unique design? How many know that you have a unique design? Right? You have a unique look, a unique personality, a unique set of skills and gifts. And at the end of the day, God's created you uniquely to be who you are for a very specific purpose, to meet specific needs and to touch people's hearts. That's ultimately the heart and the plan of God for your life. I love there was a book that came out a number of years ago through uh, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church, uh, the author Eric Rees, and it's called Shape. And it literally talks about all of these different aspects that make you you including spiritual gifts, heart, passions, you name it. Um, But at the end of the day, God has created you for something. God's created us as a church together for something. But just like we've talked about in the last number of weeks, week one we talked about the gospel. In other words, this concept of being born again. John chapter 3 talks about this idea of being born again. So we've used the analogy of like a newborn baby being born into the world. That's that same kind of concept of the gospel, being born again. The second week we talked about family. I'm grateful that those doctors, those midwives, those nurses don't take your children. Or don't give your child to someone on the fourth floor of the hospital, you know, room 302 or whatever down the hall. I'm so glad they gave them to you. And it's this concept that, that the moment you're born again, the entire concept of Christianity, of the church, is that God would place you in a family. Isaiah 66 verse 8 says that God sets the solitary in families. That's his heart. So week two, we talked about the privilege and the concept of being placed into a family. The third week, we talked about that family being set into a house. How many are grateful that we don't stay at the hospital? Mom and dad may get the baby in the hospital, but they don't stay at the hospital. They go home. Why? Because home is where you are developed, where you're grown, where you're stretched, where you're disciplined. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, scary words we don't like, but it's where all of those things happen. God designed the local church to be a home. That's why he called the church the house of God. David had incredible prayers about describing the house of God and its importance to him. The third or fourth week, we talked about what it meant to be a builder of the house of God. Not just to be in the house of God, but what it meant to be a builder of the house of God. How do we build the house? How do we make it better than before we came? Right? How many know that in the world we live in today, it's very easy to be somebody that points out the issues of something? It's a whole other thing to say, I want to be a part of the solution and make this house, in this particular context, impact the best house it can possibly be. Just like your natural house. Amen? Amen. The fifth week, we talked about the goal of people in the house, which is to become a disciple. I don't know about you, but there's, every once in a while, there's these really, really proud papa and mama moments that we have. When people out in the community come to us and say something about our children, there's nothing that'll bring us to you know, tears as quick as that. Because what it says is we've done something right. That doesn't mean we've done everything right. But we've done something right enough for them to notice that we've been trying to disciple and, in, and impart something into our children that they're getting and that they're replicating. Amen? Well, this week we're going to talk about something that no one wants to talk about. What we're going to do it today because we can! Yes! I can feel your excitement. Are you ready? 
We're going to talk about church government, leadership in the house. Yay! I can tell already people are like, okay, when's the free iPad giveaway? Because that's the only reason I came. (laughs) Kidding. That's what we're not doing today. All right. But what I want you to know is without government in the house, there's disorder. If you're in a house where everybody that lives under that roof gets to make the choice, guess what you're going to be doing over and over and over and over again? Making a lot of confusing choices because no one's on the same page. They're all rowing in their own direction. And guess what you have? A house that's not effective. Government allows things to be effective. One of the hardest challenges, I can honestly say, in 10 years of pastoring is hearing everybody's incredible ideas. And they're all incredible. But we can't do them all. Because it's impossible. We're only, you know, 180 people. How can you and 180 people do 5,000 things? You can't. But they're awesome ideas. But you know what's cool about God? Just because an idea doesn't work today doesn't mean we can't build an extension on the house 10 years in. We have a house down the street from us that they've put this incredible back extension onto their house that's an extra 1,200 square feet on the back of their house that's got a sunroom, a solarium, and an indoor hot tub, and a living room, and a little kitchenette. And I look at it and I go, whoa. And this is what I've come to realize with, it, with the house of God. It's just because you see something today, that doesn't mean that's what impact's going to look like a year from now. God loves to build stories, and he loves to build extensions. But what, one of the things that we have to understand and realize is that doesn't mean that building of that next story or that next extension is today. That's, I, I can honestly say in all of the, the last 10 years, it's one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor. Not because I'm frustrated, but I feel so bad because all the ideas are so awesome. I just want to, yeah, let's do that. and Yeah, we'll do that. But the reality is, is we can't because then we'll be ineffective. The goal of the church is to be as effective with the gospel as possible. Amen? So that's one of the reasons where leadership comes in. But here, I'm going to get into this. I just want to establish a couple of key thoughts again at the beginning of this morning, just to set up the rest of the message. So key thought number one, God has a divine plan for building, okay? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, those who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, here's the key. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God has a divine plan pattern. Impact Church, just like every other church, has a unique call, a unique vision, and a unique set of values, but all of it rallies around the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. For us, it's live like Jesus, love like Jesus. I believe if we're living like Him and loving like Him, then we're going to be making disciples rather good and rather effectively for the long haul. That's the heartbeat of this house. It has been since day one. Actually, as a matter of fact, it has been since two years before day one, because that's when God showed us that whole concept. So for 12 years now, not 10, even though we're almost at 10, for 12 years that that thread has been literally interwoven into our DNA since its inception. When we build according to God's uh, pattern, I believe God favors that. Now, I want to say this. Does God use imperfect people? Can God use imperfect systems? Yes. But does that mean that we live out imperfect systems and hope God blesses it? No. It means the heartbeat of the kids of God, the family of God, is to say, God, what is your plan, and how can we get on board with it? 
How many know in the process, sometimes he has to deal with imperfect people and imperfect systems? But the goal is to do what God designed. Are we good with that? Okay, that's huge. All right. Second thought, number uh, key thought number two. Jesus is the architect of the church. Okay? He has, he's the architect. He has the blueprint for it. He did not conceive a beautiful, amazing, heavenly concept and then hand it over to humanity to figure it out. Or to recreate it. Or to re-strategize it. No, he gave the blueprint and it's up to us as humanity to say, okay, I get it. We're going to follow that. Amen? He didn't do that with the ark. He didn't do it with the tabernacle of Moses. He didn't do it with the temple of Solomon. He didn't do it with Ezekiel's temple. And he's definitely not doing it according to Revelation with the eternal city of God. So there's a specific plan. There's a specific way. And God wants us to follow it. Amen? Okay, we're good. We're good. We're good. Third thought is this. Third key thought. The blueprint comes from God and is clear in Scripture. Very basic thought, but I want you to understand that there's three different other core ideas or philosophies or concepts that we can actually gather our idea of church government from. Okay, We could get the pattern from the world system. How many know that's what Israel tried to do many times? When they weren't happy with where God had led them, they complained about how good it was in Egypt. Even though they were in slavery. But somehow slavery felt better because they liked Egypt's systems and, and the way that it worked and the way that it functioned. Um, interestingly enough, Israel's um, pros- process for actually getting a king was from their own heart, not from God's heart. They looked at the nations around them and they saw that every nation around them had a king. And they're looking at their nation and go, well, we're just, we just have judges and priests and prophets. We don't have a king. And they literally, the Bible says, they complain to God. Can we have a king just like the rest of the nations have? And God in his infinite love and mercy and goodness and all of those things said, okay, here you go. And guess who they picked? Saul. If you ever want to read a manual on how not to do leadership, that's a very good place to start. King Saul was the epitome of insecure, self-centered leadership. So what happened? Israel said, I don't like your blueprint. We're going to go with the blueprint that we've seen. And they got the result of it, which was Saul. And then they said, um, sorry, we really messed up. Uh, can you help us pick the next one? He goes, I like David. Go get that guy. And the description of David, even though he made some mistakes, some big ones, <laughs> was there's a man after my own heart. That's a man that's got my heart. Now, I'm not here to necessarily theologically debate his choices in his life. But what we cannot deny is his humility and his love for God. It's awesome. But we cannot get the pattern from the world system. Okay? Um, and I wanna, I'm going to step on some toes for a second, all right? And I know I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because I love you and because I want the truth. Okay, ready for this? The world's greatest business practices in the world will not produce a gospel-transforming church. Now, can we borrow some in order to help us do some things better? Yes, of course we can. I think it would be unwise for us not to see some things that are working out in the world and actually take it in. But if that's the core essence of our plan, we're missing it. Are we good? Here's what I have noticed in my life. Um, because I've grown up in church, I've grown up in a good church, 
And the church I grew up in, bless their hearts, were led by a bunch of business people that had no clue of the Spirit of God. Zero. So the decisions that were made in that church for years were all centered around business perfection rather than welcoming the presence of God. And it went through pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor. The joke in that movement was every 3.2 years. Every 3.2 years? What do you mean? Pastor's going to be going, so don't get used to him because he'll be gone in 3.2 years. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that a pastor should say 20 years or a pastor should say two or three. I'm not putting a time frame on that. Sometimes, sometimes people need to move on. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Okay. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. But it cannot be the blueprint that we follow. It can't be. Because then the only thing we can expect is business perfection. But the Spirit of God not necessarily being there where it needs to be. Second thing is this. We can get our pattern from religious traditions. Many cling to traditions in the churches today because they don't like change. We good? All right, I see some people like ready to throw things at me. I'm like, you know, okay, here we go. But what happens when the Bible says one thing and our traditions say the opposite? So at some moment, we've got to be able to put them both before our faces and go, okay, I have a choice to make. Or sometimes collectively, we have a choice to make. Are we going to take the biblical blueprint designed by the architect Jesus himself, or are we going to take what the world has to offer, or what a religious tradition or concept or ritual has to offer. And at the end of the day, we cannot choose tradition. How many know that traditional churches are dying? And it's not because they're filled with bad people. They're dying because they've relied on traditions to bring transformation. It never will. Listen to my heart. It never will transform. What it does is it makes people feel comfortable while they're riding along but it's not transformative in nature, okay? Third thing is this. We can get our pattern from our own thinking, our own regenerate mind. We could. Sometimes we have these great ideas, and I don't think they're bad ideas, some of them, but again, we ultimately have to default to something above ourselves. I always say it like this. What are we anchoring ourselves to? If you're anchoring yourself to your own philosophies, then guess what you have to hold on to to make something happen? Your own philosophies. But if you're anchored to something that is immovable, unstoppable, something that's outside of yourself, namely the Word of God, then you have got traction for success. You've got momentum. Why? Because God's behind it. He is the one propelling you forward, not your own ideas. How many have ever been walked over in business because of someone else who has greater ambition for that thing than you do? How many walk away from that thing? I don't feel pretty good about that. Of course not, because ambition took over. The last thought or concept of the church should ever be about selfish ambition. How can we get where we need to get to? How can we, you know, show people in this place that we, we're all that, that we're gifted, that we have a ministry call? We can't do that. It's, no, it's totally foreign to Scripture. Sincerity is not a substitute for obedience to God. Amen? Okay. All right. So why do we need government? Well, I just want to start by um, a couple of thoughts that will kind of set me up for some other things here. The first thing we have to understand is that the church at its essence is a living spiritual organism. And to a lesser degree, the second thought is to a lesser degree, it's an organization. Now, we as a church, just like every other church in Canada, have to respond to certain things with CRA 
because we have to. Because it's law, it's legally binding. If you are a registered charity, there are certain things that you have to do. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the oversight of that. I'm grateful for the opportunity for us to get charitable receipts. Amen. You know, usually it's a great inspiration. Many churches or many places in Europe don't have that option. Many don't. So we're grateful for that. Um, But once you understand that the church at its essence, at its core, is an organism, not just an organization, it changes the way that you view the church. Some of us are administratively brilliant and automatically think organizationally from the get-go. And I want to say to you, I don't think it's sinful, but I want to challenge you to think higher. I want, you, I want to challenge you to think beyond just organization and administration. I believe firmly that we should be a well-oiled machine administratively and strategically. Absolutely. But that's not the focal point of this church, and it never will be. Because the focal point of this church is transformation through Jesus Christ. That's what it's always going to be. It's never going to change. Because that's what this house is about. Our house is about living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. That's it. I wish I could come up with something more brilliant, but that's the Bible, so I stick with it. How many know you can never go wrong when you go with the Bible? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Okay, but I want to say this, that if either the organism or the organization is neglected, you're going to have certain elements of your church that are weak. So some people that have come from more of a charismatic background, and I can say this honestly because I am one, we, we argue about the need for the organizational part, and we actually see it as unspiritual. Okay? The people that come from a, I'm scared of charismatics background, they do weird things. <laughs> you know, one of those, you're thinking it, I can tell. All right, all right. These people live in a realm where they think, well, that's spiritual stuff. That's wacky. I, that's weird. That's like, I don't understand that. And the charismatics over here are going, haven't you ever read Acts chapter 2? And the people over here are going, listen, I understand it the way I understand it, so don't tell me how I'm supposed to understand it. And then we get into this game back and forth of literally downplaying both sides. And I want you to understand today, in any house, you need organisms, or you don't have a house. But you need structure and organization. You know what my kids thrive off of? Bedtime routines. Structure. We get up at this time. We eat at this time. We go to bed at this time. Now, obviously, we're pretty flexible with that, because, especially in the summer. But when it's school season, it's boop, 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 doo, 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 doo. And you know what happens? They thrive off of structure. Kids thrive off of clear expectations and structure. I think God's figured that out somehow. Okay. So why do we need government? Well, first of all, it's because of the weakness of our flesh, the weakness of our humanity. And if I can use a different word that no one wants to use, but I'm going to use it because it's scriptural, the rebellion of humanity. Just flip on your phone, go to your news feed, and just... Observe the rebellion of humanity because it's everywhere. So you need government. There's three main channels of God's government. I have it on the screen behind me. It's number one, home government. Talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Civil government, which we should pray for. 
I'd be the first one to say I disagree with a lot of things going on out there right now, but what I will not do is not pray for my leaders. I will pray for our prime minister, for his cabinet. I'll pray for our mayor. I'll pray for our newly elected premier. I pray for them. Why? Because they don't need our criticism. They need our prayers. Our criticism is not going to make them better. It's not. Now, can we have an opinion? Absolutely. I have a very strong one about a lot of things. But that doesn't mean that my opinion is going to put Justin Trudeau into a place of perfection and make the wisest choices in the world. What he needs is for me to fight in prayer for that man and for his wife and for his two kids. Because you know what? No one knows the pressure that those people are under. No one knows. We pray for our civil government. Number three, we need church government. Hebrews 13, 17 is one reference to this, but there's many. Now, there's five main forms of church government in the church around the world today, but I'm going to specifically mention North America because these are where you're going to see these five most often. I want to just, before I talk about them, I want to share with you again that God can use imperfect people and God can use imperfect systems. So my goal here is not to go, well, I want you to think of this church down the street right now and they're just bad and they're awful and they don't listen to God and, you know, all that stuff. I don't want you to think that way. Because you have to look in the mirror and go, am I imperfect? Yep. Has God used me? Yep. Okay. Because God uses imperfect people and he uses imperfect systems. But that is not saying that his desire for you is to stay that way or for the churches to stay that way. Okay. Are we good? So the first time, first thought, or the first form of church government is what we would often call an independent one-person rule. Um, It often is formed because of an offense at a previous church. It's often formed as a result of a church split. And it's often formed because that person did not like the church government structure of the last church they were in. So that's how often those churches form. They are autocratic in nature. They tend to be heavy-handed and controlling. They tend to be dictatorial. They tend to have a great high priority on honoring that, that person in leadership to such a degree that it's almost crazy. Are we good? Leaders need checks and balances. And if there's a system set up where basically everything is one person all the time, that's not good. It's not good. At all. God desires to set in place a set leader in the church, yes. But his desire is to surround them with biblically qualified leaders that can act as a team in team ministry, making team decisions based upon the overall effectiveness and health of the church. Amen? The Brethren Church actually has this core concept that's really, really cool. I don't know if you've ever been connected to the Brethren Church. But they believe in this concept of plurality of eldership, which we're going to talk about because it's our fifth one. The, the only thing that at times is missing there is they don't believe in having a set person. So there's no set leader. There's just a team of leaders. And that becomes problematic in nature. Um, but the core concept of what they're trying to do is the opposite of this process. So they've seen this approach of, of one person kind of controlling everything and one person being the, the, the person for everything. And they've seen that and they go, that's not good. So they went the opposite way, which is good. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next. The second one is what we call congregational rule. This is the majority of churches. If you've come from a church background, you've probably been in one like this. I grew up in one like this. 
Um, this is where the majority of my early years were in. First 20 years of my life were in this uh, thing. Every action of the church is determined by the majority. Leader has one vote like everyone else, comes from the concept of democracy. It usually has committees, debates, politics. They love to vote on the color of the carpet, etc., etc. Okay? Totally ineffective means of church government because it can stifle out the move of the Spirit with one person over one-third. I grew up in that. We had a move of God in our church in January of 97 that was snuffed out by the the 50 plus one in the church that were afraid of it and didn't know what to do with it. And they fired the pastor. The church fell apart. It's just in the last four years come back, almost 16 years later, finally is resurrecting again. My brother's actually at that church, and they have a great church. A pastor there is an awesome man. I know him not well personally, but he's a great guy. But that church struggled because they literally put everything in the hands of the congregation. Here's the issue with this one thought. Would you ever make a decision in your home, a financial decision in your home, with your children's input and advice on how to make that decision? Because if they were, you'd be going to Disney World every four weekends. You would be at McDonald's having... Lots of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in the church are obviously children. There's different levels of spiritual maturity in the church. But there are newbies. There's toddlers. There's preschoolers. There's children, you know, kids at school age. There's high schoolers. There's young adults in the church, spiritually speaking. But there's a reason why God has set things up so that the core people that are the most spiritually mature are making the decisions. Because the moment you're drawing in people that have very little spiritual maturity, then the only thing that they can potentially bring to that decision is their gift or their experience. But if it's not according to the blueprint in heaven, then they're diluting the blueprint. And the results that usually come are more business-driven and less organism-driven. Are we tracking? Okay, cool. All right, keep going. Right? No one's throwing anything at me yet. Three, central government. Another word for that would be Episcopal. That doesn't mean the Episcopalian church, but it's just a word used to describe it. And it literally talks about churches and leaders that are controlled by a denominational hierarchy. In other words, everything that they teach, everything that they do is literally determined by the, by the headquarters. So there's no autonomy of the local church. There isn't a uniqueness to that church because, um, like, even, for example, even if they had a specific outreach to a specific area because of a need in their own city, they couldn't do it because they have to do what's been mandated by the denominational headquarters that are usually 4,000 kilometers away. How many know that that's a recipe for disaster? Because the local church in that city or that town knows that city and knows that town and knows how to reach that city or town. So you have to give them the autonomy to be able to do that. Oftentimes, property is not owned by the local church, but by the denomination in this setting. Officials have the ability to move pastors and leaders around quite frequently. Oftentimes, in these movements, the curriculum and the teaching curriculum for those churches are already predetermined. So there's no flexibility to address, as a pastor, to address core issues in your church that are going on, because you have to stick to the curriculum. How many know that in a family, sometimes you've got to throw the book out the door because you've got to deal with an issue? Sometimes you've got to deal with a family issue. And it didn't, it didn't fit the script for today, 
It didn't fit what you had planned for today, but you got to do it because it's family time. Amen? Amen. Okay? Um, nowhere in the New Testament do you see an outside force existing or exercising control over a local church. What you do see is apostolic leaders equipping pastors to lead the church. I'm grateful through MFI that we have apostolic leaders, including regional directors and an assistant regional director that we have relationship with that we answer to. So if there's an issue here, they're called in. And if they got to deal with me, because, you know, maybe I cheer for the Leafs too much or something like that, they come in and they deal with me and they put me in some other jersey of which I have to get comfortable with, which I don't like, but you know how it is. Joking aside, they can come in and say, this is, this is an issue. We've got to address this. We've got to deal with this. Okay? It's important. Fourth thing is this. Presbyterian model or what we call the board of deacons. Again, this is not a Presbyterian church, but it's a word used to describe the model. So a board of deacons, uh, a board of directors could be a way of seeing it. It's a controlling council or board over the church. This council runs the church and makes all decisions. So the spiritually mature leaders, pastors, elders, do not run the church. The board runs the church and tells the pastors what to do. Okay? Again, a lot of churches fit this kind of model. Members of the board are not necessarily truly called deacons or elders. They're usually not biblically qualified to be a deacon or elder according to the New Testament model. But what happens is, is they literally use the pastor or the leadership team in a, in a sense, a teaching role. So their, their role is to just teach. But their role is not to necessarily make decisions or to have any influence over the direction of the church. So the fifth example, which is the biblical blueprint, which is what we desperately desire to follow, is what we call a plurality of eldership. One, ver, uh, one group who's written books on this talks about an apostolic form. Some people talk about a theocratic form. But the core element is this idea of a plurality of elders. Um, it is the most biblical form and represents an apostolic concept or initiative. It recognizes God as head, but a team of elders who are biblically qualified, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, that are biblically qualified by their spiritual life, their domestic life, um, all of those things, to qualify to lead the church, not just doctrinally, but directionally. And it also involves discipline. How many know that the parental role at home is not just in doctrine? No, that's not right. This is what we do in this house. Also involves discipline. Does. And it also involves um, the direction, where we're going as a church. I'm so grateful that our kids did not choose where we bought our house five years ago. We chose that. Because we saw the need and we saw what would fit that need as a home. Some people wouldn't have chosen the home that we chose, but we chose it because, number one, we felt God lead us to it. But number two, because we knew it would fit the needs of our house. It would take care of us. Amen? Um, there's always a chief elder or a, a set person in place. A, if you can call it a senior pastor or a lead pastor, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the plurality of elders is what gives the checks and balances. And our goal with that whole concept is continue to grow that team and continue to grow that team. Why? Because the, when you're growing that team, even greater checks and balances. That's our heart. Another name for this, uh, for this word elder in the New Testament is either bishop or pastor, but you can either way see it either way. But it's this whole core concept that elders run the church. They literally give insight, direction, uh, doctrine, discipline, the whole nine yards to the church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm coming in for a close here. 
Uh, Paul and Timothy, this is a great verse. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the elders and deacons. The church right here, it's, it's literally made up of three different groups of people. Elders, deacons, saints. Oftentimes you'll hear people refer to Ephesians chapter 4, that no, though for those that really track along with spiritual gifts, they'll often refer to Ephesians chapter 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, as offices. But they're never referred to as offices in the New Testament, not once. They're only referred to as gifts. They're called the gifts of the Son, Jesus gave them. But the offices that are mentioned in Scripture are elder and deacon. It's only two. So the way that churches should run is an eldership team giving direction, doctrine, discipline, uh, you know, teaching, all that stuff, discipleship, all the D words <laughs> um, that we can gather with deacons under them serving the house in many capacities. Sometimes that's overseeing a small group, a connect group in our case. Sometimes it's being a department head like Colleen is over Impact Kids or Scott and Carling are over Ignite Youth. But elders are overseers. I want to read a verse to you. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says, For this reason I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. This was the role of Paul every single time he left his missionary journey. He would, before he would leave, he would put, appoint elders in every church to take care of the church. Elders, right? Acts 20, verse 20, it says, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock. This is the command to eldership, among uh, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. The Greek word that's used to describe this word elder literally means an overseer, especially of a church, a person charged with the duty of seeing that things to be done by others are done rightly, a curator, a guardian, or superintendent of the church. That's the definition of it. So elders are qualified scripturally based upon character. Now I want to say this because there's a wide variety of, of opinions on this. Um, I love the fact that there's Bible college teaching available to us in many different forms. I love the fact that we can do an internship and be able to develop some people from a Bible college perspective. Um, I love the fact that Bible colleges are available even now online, which is awesome. So people can actually stay at home, serve in their local church, and actually get a degree online. Uh, Pastor Ray actually finished her degree online through master's, which was awesome. But I want you to know that nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to have a Bible college degree to be an elder. Now, do we recommend it? Yes, because it's foundation laying. But interestingly enough, the entire passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, the entire thing can be literally categorized into one thing, character. Everything can come down to character. That's what it's all about. They're looking for people of character. Deacons are chief servants or supervisors of ministry. Interestingly enough, the actual word deacon translated in the Greek literally means servant. Doesn't that blow away the board of deacon concept right there? Blows it away. Because deacons are not meant to control. They're meant to serve. That's the goal. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. One version says, with integrity. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. This deacon concept is huge. Interestingly, in Romans, or sorry, in um, Acts chapter 6, verses 3 to 7, it actually makes 
the uh, prerequisite to be a deacon to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. How many churches operate out of that? Not many. Because sometimes we can't find those people. Sometimes, we, it's funny, we live in a day and age, Sandra and I have often joked about this. When I grew up and I went to youth camp and there were 650 kids at youth camp at Coburg, Lakeshore Pentecostal Youth Camp, it was awesome. And all 650 kids that were there that whole week felt called to youth ministry. And I always thought to myself, there's only 438 PAC churches. How can 650 kids be called to youth ministry in the PSC all in one weekend? It's impossible. But here's what's changed about that time that's very different today. 25, 30 years ago, everyone felt drawn to ministry. Today, everyone's running from it. Very few people go, wow, what an honor to be called into ministry or, or to actually do the work of the Lord for God in, in His church. People are running from it for a variety of different reasons. Number one, they've been hurt in church. They've been hurt by leadership. They've been burned by people. How many know sometimes Christians are like sheep and they bite? You know what I'm saying? And sometimes leaders are like shepherds that bite. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of, you know, little nattering going on. So people are more hesitant to get involved in ministry because they know the pressure and the weight that comes with it. Which is why the Bible places the emphasis on character. Because here's what I've realized with character. There's pressure in ministry. And pressure in ministry always reveals cracks. Sometimes it's the crack in your marriage. Sometimes it's the crack in your parenting. Sometimes it's the crack in your finances or in your health or in your, in your communication skills. Sometimes it's a crack in how you deal with people. But this is the one thing that I've realized in my life, and at times I've bombed this test, and at times I've done really well. Pressure comes. Elders are those, and deacons are those, that can handle it. They can handle it, because they realize who they're anchored to. And if Jesus can handle it, so can they. Now, they may not like going through some situations. I know there's some situations in the last 10 years I have not liked going through. But I know God is with me, and I know that God's called me, and I know that God's grace is with me, and I've never doubted for one moment that God's not going to get me through it. Not one. And we've had doozies in the last 10 years. We had the, one of the biggest doozies before the church even started. When we were confronted um, by a particular uh, group of people about a particular social issue, and I, I'm sure you can all guess what that was. And we were like, we got home after that night, we went, welcome to Kingston. <laughs> wow. I don't know, you know, honey, maybe we should just go back to Oshawa. And, you know, Oshawa is a great church. Maybe we'll just serve Pastor Frank. But we came out of that going, wow, this is fun. Lord, we're ready. We're ready. Because God had taken us through the test. Deacons must first be tested. Elders have been tested for a while. And they've been proven that they can handle the weight and pressure of ministry. Amen? Amen. Um, okay, so that Greek word for servant literally means one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, servant, attendant, or minister. Three, saints are members of the church and ultimately are accountable to honor and serve the deacons and the elders in the house, most especially Jesus. But in the function of it, we honor one another. That's the whole concept. Ephesians two nineteen to 22 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. 
that saint literally means a set-apart person, someone who's sanctified and set-apart for godly purposes. That's what a saint literally means. So why in the world is church structure so important? I want to end with this thought. Why is church government so important? Um, Because I honestly believe it'll affect, whether positive or negative, it'll greatly affect the effectiveness of any church. Um, Can I use something as a great comparison? Um, How many have ever walked up to somebody on the street and complimented them on their skeletal structure? I'm sure some of us do it all the time. Like, just, like, your femur is just the best I've ever seen. We don't do that. But what we do is we complement the outside features, the things that we see. Sometimes that's hair. Sometimes that's eye color. Sometimes that whatever else. But it's, it's that concept of we, we complement what we see. But if you don't have the skeletal structure what you see will be greatly transformed and changed for the worse. It's necessary. It holds everything else together. Trust me. I know. I was once a person that stood in this camp and complained about structure and or administration, organization. You don't even understand the Holy Spirit. You're just so far from God. You don't blah, 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 blah. And you know what I've come to realize? Both are necessary, and when one is weak, the entire church suffers. Amen. If you ask the average church member what form of church government we have, no one would know. If you ask the average church member at any church in the city right now what your church government is, people wouldn't know. You know why? Because people don't care about the skeletal structure. They don't. They just want to make sure that God's honored, that the word's preached, that the worship's good, that there's discipleship programs, that there's ministries for their kids and for their youth, and, and that they're going to be taken care of, and that they're done with integrity. That's what people care about. People come to church, and you know why they love impact? Almost every time they write on the guest cards, I love the worship. And then I go home, and I'm very insecure, and I think all day long about, they didn't like me. <laughs> Kidding. It's all good. I don't do that. Okay, well, year one I did, but that's okay. It's Okay. Because you know what I love is they sense the presence of God. And you know what the, the, the check, checky box system is for people who come to impact? Do I feel the presence of God? Check. They don't care how we run all these other things. They just want to make sure that, hey, you know, are we doing good? Yeah, we're good. Does everything on the inside look good? Yeah, we're doing good. It's all good. They don't think about that. But church government or that structure can hinder the thing of God, or the process and the effectiveness of God in his church if we don't make sure we get that into alignment and in order. It's so key. We good? How many are grateful that that message is over and done with and now we can move on to the next week's message? Yay! Okay, here we go. I want, I want to say just as a closing, as a thought here, government and church government in particular and leadership in particular is a very difficult thing today because of the representation of leadership in the world today. But can I ask you for something that I'm, I'm going to be a little personal here for a second. I want to ask you for something. I am not unaware of how little people think of institutions today. I'm not unaware of how little people, people think of leadership today. I'm not unaware of it. As a matter of fact, I'm probably more aware every single week of my life because of some of the things that are going on on the news that we can read about every day. We're not blind to it. 
But can I say one thing? We're also aware of how difficult that is in a church concept. When people come in with this concept of, well, I don't know about you. We feel it sometimes. We do feel it. Here's what I want you to do. Pray, is this the house God has for me? Two, is this the house I can build and be a part of? Three, are these the leaders that I want to support and pray for? If anything, we need your prayers. And I'll tell you why. We are living in a day and age where we are getting thrown questions that we have never had in my pastoral history. And they are hard questions. We're not afraid of them. We're not afraid to address things. We're not afraid to stand for what we believe in. We're not afraid to be anchored to the word. Trust me, I'm not at all. But I want to say to you this morning, because sometimes you guys aren't aware. Sometimes we just kind of go through life. It has increased and increased exponentially in the last year alone. The difficulty of pastoring today. I want to encourage you. Sometimes we may see things that could have been done different. I want to encourage you. Talk to your leaders. Because sometimes we don't see things that maybe you see. And we love the fact that we can help each other out. But here's what I want you to do. Pray for us. We are literally, literally, we've got massive bullseyes on our back. And the enemy would love nothing more than to take us out. So I want your prayers. I covet your prayers. We need them. We need them more than you'll ever know. We need your, your love. We need your prayers. We need your support more than ever before. Because we are literally going to step into, and I believe this, that we're stepping into a greater opportunity to impact this city. But we need you. We don't just need, uh, hey, that's awesome, Pastor. That's great. We need you. We need the family of God to say, this is my house, and we are going to make a difference in this city. We are going to transform this city one life at a time. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.